Well, this is one of those messages that uh, frighten me a bit because I'm not all that certain where I'm going. You know, if you're if, if you're doing an expository message, you take a passage of scripture and uh, uh, you just examine it and see what it says, and you break it down into the various uh, lines of thought in that sentence or in that paragraph, and then. You look at each individual word, and, and it is what it is, and it says what it says, and you can't make anything else out of it, really, and uh, that that really simplifies it a lot. But whenever you're trying to do what what I'm going to try to do tonight, it's a whole different ball game because I'm not quite certain uh, the best approach, and it's one of those things you just, as you go along, you try to feel your way along, and because I want to make sure that... that that everybody understands exactly what we're talking about. So tonight's message has to do basically with trying to lay a foundation for the next four or five messages, all of which will pertain to the Lord's Supper, after which time we're going to be observing the Lord's Supper. Uh, but we need, to, we need to know exactly where we're coming from in this regard. Now, one of the one of the questions, and I think I need to start here because this is this is often what it gets down to, and that is, what is the difference between an independent Baptist church and all of the other churches? And uh, you know, I, I I could have answered that very easy forty, fifty years ago, because I could have said back then, you know, basically we believe exactly the same thing that this group and that group and that group believes. We just do our mission work a little bit different. But, well, nowadays it goes beyond that, and a lot of people are confused about, uh, you know, what makes one church different from another church. And a lot of people got the idea it doesn't make any difference. They're all of the same. And I've heard people say that. Oh, one church is just as good as another. They're all of the same. They just got different names. Well, if it was that simple, it'd really be a great thing, but it's not. Dividing the churches up into different denominations has, uh, well, it hasn't really helped things much at all. At first glance, it might appear helpful because you've got over here, you've got the Methodists and the Presbyterians and you've got the Baptists and you've got the Pentecostals and you've got all of these different groups and what have you. So now we've got them divided up into these neat little packages and uh, and that settles it, but not so fast because... Upon closer examination, you soon discover that there are differences within each one of these various groups. I mean, there's 40, 11 different kinds of Methodists. I mean, there's not just Methodists. There's all kinds of different Methodists, and, and there's a lot of different kinds of Presbyterians. And so now you get into the subgroups. Well, because I'm a Baptist, it's a whole lot easier for me to speak about Baptists than it is any of these other groups. And as you know, there's all kinds of different Baptists. Uh, there are Southern Baptists. There's the BBF, the Baptist Bible Fellowship Group. There's the ABA and on and on and on, just all of the, uh, all, all of the different groups. And, uh, and then there are those that just say we are just, we're just independent. Baptist. 
that is that we are unaffiliated without uh, with any other man-made organization whatsoever. We believe in history teaches and any honest person would have to admit that these kinds of churches, not by name necessarily, but these kind of churches have existed all of the way back to the times of the apostles. Now, whenever I say that, and I very well could turn this into a history lesson, and I could give you quotes from Methodists and Presbyterians and, and, and everybody else confirming the fact, even from Catholics confirming the fact that these people that we know as just independent Baptists, maybe not by the Baptist name, but these kind of churches, these particular beliefs that they embrace have existed from the times of the apostles. So what is an independent Baptist church? My dear friend, Brother M. L. Moser, wrote a, a good tract some years ago entitled, What is an Independent Baptist? And he divided his lines of thoughts up into four different groups. A lot of things could be said, but for simplicity's sake, he put it into four groups, and I'll mention those tonight. But understand that this is just a, just a you know the the way that he would have divided it up by way of explaining what we are. First of all, we are self-governing. An independent Baptist church is self-governing. That is, they're not under the control of any outside organization. And they do not have a membership in any kind of organization. We're, we're just a body of believers in Christ. We don't get our orders from headquarters. We don't look to Nashville. We don't look to Springfield. We don't look to Texarkana. We don't look anywhere else where these headquarters are uh, for any, uh, any advice or certainly not any counsel or direction or orders from those people. Whatever decisions we make, we make right here. And as I said this morning, every member has one vote, and that's the way that we do business. So we are self-governing. Now, I, I know, and I've, I've, I've got to kick myself in the seat of the britches and get beyond some of these things, because every time I get on one of these points, I could, I could talk for the next 30 minutes about it, because there's all of this stuff going through my mind, and from just my personal experience, uh, you know, I, the church I was saved in was a member of the Baptist Bible Fellowship in Springfield, Missouri, and... and um, and so I know quite a bit about that group and still have friends today that are members of that and good people and so forth. But, you know, you hear people say, well, we're independent just like you are. Well, you know, that's real easy to say, but I'm telling you what, when they begin to tighten the screws on a church and here they're sending their missionaries out there and... uh after a while, you find yourself being influenced by these organizations, whether you realize it or not, and you mark it down. Anytime you have a, 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 a parachurch ministry or you have some sort of an outside organization and they have a president and a vice president, you're going to have politics in that. You mark it down, that's exactly where it's going to lead to. And where you've got politics, you're going to have 
politicking and you're going to have people out here trying to get into office and you're going to have people exerting pressure on people. And it just it used to offend me so much whenever a missionary would contact me and I would say, you know, what church are you out of, brother? He said, oh, I'm a Baptist Bible Fellowship missionary. And without, you know, trying to be rude, I, I would, in a, you know, in a roundabout way say, we're, we're not interested. Listen, if you're going over there to some foreign field and you're going to baptize people in the name of the Baptist Bible Fellowship or the Southern Baptist Convention or the ABA or whatever, we're not interested. The only organization Jesus Christ ever started was a church. That's it. We don't need any other organization. Secondly, Brother Moser in his tract said that, that an independent Baptist church is sound in doctrine and and he said, in other words, it upholds the Bible as the divinely inspired authority for Christian faith and practice. Well, that's the way it ought to be. The Bible is our guidebook. This is where we get our orders. This is headquarters, so to speak. Thirdly, he said that an independent Baptist church has a Bible-centered program. And then lastly, he says an independent Baptist church has a distinctive a distinctive emphasis, uh, and by that he meant that, that, for example, and he went on and he elaborated in this, he spoke about the fact that we have a statement of faith. You, you know, there was a time that you'd go into a Baptist church and there would be, you'd see, you older folks remember what I'm talking about, you'd see the church covenant and, and a statement of faith all right up there on the wall somewhere. In other words, we made it known what we believed. Now, here's, here's some of the things that we believe that make us different than a lot of people. We believe in a regenerated church membership. In other words, only those folks who have received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior have a right to church membership. Now, now hang on to that, because later on, when we get to talking about the Lord's Supper, and we start talking about the restrictions that we put on the Lord's Supper, there are going to be other folks, you know, saying, now, wait a minute, that's not right. Yeah, I mean, you shouldn't exclude, you know, us or them from the Lord's Supper. You shouldn't have these restrictions, but... I want you to remember this because certainly every true church has some restriction. You, 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 you must have a testimony of salvation. You have to say that you've received Christ as your Savior to be a member of that church. So there is a restriction right there. So it's not a matter of whether or not we have restrictions on the Lord's table. It's a matter of what restrictions we have. And we'll get to that later on. Going on uh, in this regards, Brother Moser spoke about the fact that with a distinctive biblical emphasis on things, we believed in scriptural giving. That is, that our money ought to be generated by free will offerings and tithes of, of our members. That, that's the way. Uh, that's the way a church ought to operate. You know, it's real easy for a church to go into business. In fact, I'll tell you, a lot of them have. They've bought everything from strip malls and everything under the sun that are nothing more than money-making schemes. 
That's not the way God intended for His church to be supported. We could get out here in the investment, you know, and uh, world. I, I can't hardly blame some of these merchants for complaining about the church using its tax-exempt status to get a leg up on them and them trying to do what, you know, the same thing and they don't have the same advantage. Just one example is, a, let's say, a Christian bookstore. Well, sounds innocent enough, unless you own a Christian bookstore down the street and you've got to pay taxes and you don't get all of the breaks that the church does. It's a whole different ballgame. So what I'm saying is that as an independent Baptist church, we think the right way to operate is just like the churches did earlier, free will offerings and, and, and tithes. And then, then there's a, a statement of faith. Now, I've, I've got to hurry up. And when we talk about the statement of faith in every Baptist uh, Statement of faith I know of, it speaks about the fact that there are two church ordinances. There's baptism and the Lord's Supper. And it's on the latter that we're going to focus tonight and for the next few weeks. Here's, here's the problem. Too many people say, well, th- this is what I believe. And they just leave it there as though that settles it. You talk to people like that. Well, I'll tell you what, I, I'm a Baptist and I believe, and they go on and there's no, no evidence. Well, listen, just because you believe something, it doesn't make it so. And just because you heard some preacher, maybe a famous or popular preacher, repeat it, that doesn't make it so. And just because you repeat what he said doesn't make it so. We need to be like those disciples in Berea where the Bible says in the book of Acts that they searched the Scriptures daily to see if those things were so. That ought to be our attitude. It's not enough for me to stand up here and say, well, we're independent Baptists and this is what we believe. We need to be able to look at the Bible and discern from the Bible whether we're right or whether we're wrong. So the next few weeks we're going to talk about Tonight, the institution of the Lord's Supper, and then we're going to talk about the elements of the Lord's Supper, the purpose of the Lord's Supper, the proper observance of the Lord's Supper, gratitude for the Lord's Supper, and so on and so forth. So that's kind of where we're going. Now, there's a couple of scriptures that comes to my mind when I think about the institution of the Lord's Supper. One of those is located in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse number 2, where Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. And he says there, in essence, he says, I thank God for, for you remembering me. And then he makes another statement, and he says, and, and, and keeping the ordinances as I delivered them unto you. Now, a lot of Bible scholars believe that Paul is using what I'll call a a holy sarcasm. Because they say they didn't really remember him. And by the way, they're right. And by the way, there are instances where Paul did resort to a holy kind of sarcasm to make his point. And so that's all right. But I think rather that Paul is actually commending them, the church as a whole, for the fact that they not only remembered him, but they have kept, that is, and that word kept implies they've guarded or protected the ordinances as he had delivered to them. So, 
if you're acquainted with the book of 1 Corinthians, you know he's about to jump down their throat. And, and before doing so, before dealing with some really touchy issues pertaining to members of, you know, the, the male and the female there in that chapter, it seems like he's commending them where he thinks that he can justly do so. The other verse of Scripture that comes to my mind is found over in the book of Hebrews, and it's in chapter number 8 and verse 5, where the writer of Hebrews, I believe, is Paul, and where he is referring back to Moses, and where God said to Moses, See that thou make all things according to the pattern that I showed you in the mount. Now remember what happened. In those days, whenever God was speaking to the children of Israel, He spoke to them through Moses. And He gave instructions for them to build the tabernacle. And you remember that God designated precisely what kind of materials they were to use and the dimensions and everything about the tabernacle. Nothing was left to their whims or their imagination. And God said, Moses, you see that you make all things according to this pattern. Don't deviate from it anywhere whatsoever. I want badger skin out there on the curtains. And I want gold here, and I want silver there, and I want cedar here, and I want it arranged in the proper order. Are you with me? I'm telling you, God is in the details. When God gives orders, God intends for us to do exactly according to the pattern that He's given us. Well, maybe you're thinking, what in the world does this have to do with the Lord's Supper? Now you're way back there in the Old Testament, and you're talking about the tabernacle. The principle is the same. It doesn't make any difference whether we're talking about the tabernacle or the temple or whether we're talking about the New Testament church and the manner in which we operate. We are to do all things according to the pattern that God has given to us. And right here is the pattern for everything we do. This old black book that I hold in my hand, it gives us the pattern. So... With all of that being said, we're going to talk for the next few minutes about the institution of the Lord's Supper. And, uh, and I want us to think about five things. What it is, when it was instituted, where it was instituted, who was present when it was instituted, and why it was instituted. So those are the thoughts, or you can put it in a question form if you want to, and it'll, I think, help us to to just do a quick survey as to what the Lord's Supper is all about. So, what is it? What is the Lord's Supper? Symbolism has always played an important role in transmitting truth. And you go back through the Old Testament and you think about all of those sacrificial uh, offerings and you think about the feast days and, and all of that. Everything about the tabernacle and the temple and all of the Levitical priesthood, all of the sacrifices and the offerings, all of those things were symbolic of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. If you miss that, then you totally miss what it's all about. It's not about silver and gold and cedar wood and marble and, you know, all of the other material things. It's all about 
Jesus. Now, God knows that we have a tendency to forget. And so when we come to the Lord's Supper, we find that the Lord instituted the Lord's Supper, that we might be instructed, that we might be reminded, and that we might even be inspired. And we'll talk about that later on. I said a few minutes ago, the Lord's Supper is one of the two church ordinances. And a lot of times we use that word ordinance without any explanation whatsoever, but the, an ordinance is simply, as you might say, the orders that we've received. Charles Spurgeon made this statement. He said, it's not enough to be so plain that you can be understood. You must speak so that you cannot be misunderstood. And that, that's exactly what I want to do. I, I don't want to leave any room for misunderstanding. When we talk about an ordinance, we're talking about an order or a command. Now, here's the potential problem. When we make reference to the Lord's Supper as an ordinance, that is a command or an order, why don't we just lump everything that the Lord ever commanded and put them all in there and say we've got, you know, 150 ordinances. Another friend of mine, a fellow by the name of Davis Huckabee, a man with a brilliant mind, wrote a book. Now, he's written several books, but he gives an explanation. I'm going to, I'm going to read a quote from his book, and, uh, and I'm going to tell you ahead of time, you're not going to get it all. And, and I don't intend for you to. It'd take another 30 minutes for me to deal with some of the terminology that he uses and try to break it all down where everybody could understand it. But I think in, in quoting him that you can get the idea as to why when we speak about two ordinances, there are only two instead of, instead of fifty or whatever. Here's, here's what he wrote. In Christian usage, it refers to a divinely instituted rite which conveys truth through symbolism. In studying the New Testament account of the church, we find, besides moral duties, certain acts commanded by its founder, significant of certain truths enjoined on the members of the church, and such acts are called ordinances. An ordinance is an outward institution appointed by Christ, by positive precept, to be observed by by all His people to the end of the age, commemorating an essential gospel fact and declaring an essential gospel truth. And if I could just pause long enough to say that every phrase He uses there is extremely important. Of these, there are two, baptism and communion, which we generally refer to as the Lord's Supper, which is the initiation and the consummation of the Christian life. I'll talk more about that later on. When we think of baptism, that's the initiation of the Christian life. And whenever we think about the the Lord's Supper, we're talking about the other. So the ordinances, he says, are the gospel in symbol. They commemorate, declare, and typically embody the whole Christian system They are the true symbols of Christianity, divinely appointed and all-sufficient. These are positive 
institutions. Now, I want you to listen carefully to these next remarks. He says, positive institutions different from moral duties. And then he begins to enumerate uh, uh, or enlarge on this thought. And he points out the differences between these positive institutions and our moral duties. And in understanding this, I'm trying to get you to see that there has to be a restriction on the number of what we call ordinances in the church, that you can't just take every command in the Bible and make it a church ordinance. You with me? The first difference is in their nature. Moral duties are intrinsically holy. They are commanded because they are right. Positive institutions are right because they are commanded. They are not only of no obligation in themselves, but if they were not enjoined, their performance as religious acts would be wrong. Do you get what he's saying? In other words, here we have a moral responsibility, and we preach that because it's right, regardless of circumstances or anything else. Whereas on the other hand, you have these positive institutions, you have these ordinances as we refer to them. These ordinances are right only because they've been commanded. And were we to do these things without having had such a command, we'd actually be in violation of what the Bible teaches. Then there's a difference in the method of ascertaining their existence. Moral duties are deducted from principles. Positive institutions require a precept. Then they're different in their extent, he says. The former are binding on all moral beings and the latter on particular persons. In other words, for example, we think about the moral law. We think about, let's say, the Ten Commandments. And listen, God's moral law is binding on all humanity. And that's why the way that we recognize that we are sinners is the fact that we violated God's moral law. But whereas the moral law is binding on everyone, when it comes to these these uh, uh, ordinances in the church, they're binding only on particular people, and that is the church members. So there's a difference in the extent of the two. And then he mentions in their duration, the former are of eternal obligation, the latter are temporary. The moral exists always before the positive, the positive in consequence of the moral and by means of it. Now, that explains, whether you got it all or not, that is an explanation of what we mean when we talk about baptism and the Lord's Supper as being the ordinances in the church. Now, over the years, a problem developed. The problem is this. The problem is that suddenly these became known as sacraments. In its classical usage, in its strict definition, there might not be anything wrong with referring to these as sacraments. In fact, I can show you some of the old-timey Baptists that literally did that. They would refer to the Lord's Supper as a sacrament, but the problem is that over the years, the word sacrament came to mean this. It meant a means of grace. In other words, according to those that, that embrace that particular viewpoint, 
This is the way we appropriate God's grace to ourselves. In other words, to be saved, you've got to be baptized. To be saved, you've got to, uh, you've got to, uh, uh, receive communion and so forth. So that's why we don't use the word sacrament because it's not a means to grace. We're saved by grace through faith. That not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Baptism can't save you. The Lord's Supper can't save you. And then there's a difference in the number because the, the Catholics come along and they say that there are seven sacraments. And the Salvation Army comes along and says, well, there's not any. So you've got all of these differences. So how many are there? Well, some folks put foot washing in there. They say there are three ordinances. And there are some, we've got some right here in this area, by the way, the Houston area, some Baptists that claim that uh, foot washing ought to be in there. Some take foot washing out and they put the Lord's Day in there and say the Lord's Day is an ordinance. We still believe there are two. Now, why wouldn't foot washing be a part of this? And boy, I'm telling you, over the years we've had some people very adamant about this. They'd come and join the church, and then after they joined the church, they start trying to change my viewpoint on it and trying to change the church about it and trying to get us to incorporate that as one of the ordinances. The confusion arises out of this statement from John chapter 13, verse 14, where the Lord said, If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done unto you. Well, there you go. There's a commandment. There's an order from headquarters. Well, why not make that one of the ordinances? Why not put it in as the third Ordinance. Well, to understand it, you've got to understand the details of our Lord's service to the disciples. In that day, it was a common courtesy for, if, 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 for example, if you had a guest uh, in, in your home, it was a common courtesy. They'd been traveling, walking down the dusty trails. As a common courtesy, you would wash their feet. Now, here's what you need to remember. The disciples have been arguing about which one's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. It sounds like Baptist, huh? I'm better than you are. I'm, you know, I'm greater than you are. And so they're bickering about this and the Lord knows it. And so on that occasion where they go there in the upper room, none of them offered to wash the other's feet. None of them offered to wash the Lord's feet. All of them ignored that common courtesy. So Jesus washed their feet. Wow. I, I, I feel certain that we do not let that impact us as it should. King of kings and the Lord of lords down on his knees washing the stinking, dirty feet of his followers. Here's a good thought. If you knew that you were going to die just within a matter of hours or a a day, would washing somebody's feet be on your mind? Would you be thinking about that? Jesus was thinking about it. 
And he washed their feet and he taught them. He says, if I, as I've done to you, I want you to do this one to another. This is a demonstration of love. It's a common courtesy, but it's not a church ordinance. And here's why. It does not in any way convey a picture of salvation as baptism and the Lord's Supper do. When you think about baptism and the Lord's Supper, hey, you've got, you've got a, a silent picture, as it were, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You, you don't see that in foot washing. So, there are two ordinances. Now, that brings us to the next thought, and that is when it was instituted, and I'll try to hurry. In Matthew chapter 26 and verse 17, here we find the first reference to the Lord's Supper. And it says now in, in verse 17, Now the first day of the Feast of, the, of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying unto him, Where will thou that we prepare for thee to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to such a man, and say to him, The Master saith, My time is at hand, I will keep the Passover with my house, uh, at thy house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had appointed them, and they made ready the Passover. And, and you go on and read the actual institution of the Lord's Supper, and we'll be doing that uh, later on. And uh, it's no accident that this was at the time of the Passover, by the way. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7 tells us that Christ is our Passover. Remember earlier I said that everything related to the Levitical priesthood, the temple, everything had to do with the person and the work of Christ. The Passover is a picture of the deliverance that Jesus Christ provided for us. Just as the Old Testament Passover reminded them that they've been delivered from Egyptian bondage, the Lord's Supper reminds us that we've been delivered from our sins. Now, I almost hate to even mention this, but I, but I'll just allude to it and maybe you'll want an explanation later on. A lot of folks wonder, you know, why it is, and by the way, I think that if a church so chooses, we can observe the Lord's Supper any day of the week. But you'd be amazed how many people have spoken critically of the fact that most of the time that we observe the Lord's Supper on a Wednesday night instead of a, instead of a Sunday. Uh, when do you think the Lord observed the Lord's Supper, that it was instituted? Was it on a Sunday? No. I hesitate to bring this up because some of you is going to throw you into a tether. You, I don't want to confuse you, but let me tell you, Jesus was not crucified on what we call Good Friday. Jesus was crucified on Wednesday. The Lord's Supper was instituted before Jesus was crucified. Remember, the, the Jews' day started at 6 o'clock in the, in the evening different from from us. And so on that evening before He was crucified, which was on a Wednesday at 9 o'clock in the morning, that evening before is when this was instituted. Are you with me? Jesus was three days 
and three nights in the grave. Not just three days like all of the commentators say, oh, well, that, that meant a part of three different days. No, it doesn't. When he says three days and three nights, that's 72 hours, and that tells us that Jesus arose from the dead after six o'clock on what we call Saturday evening, which was the first day of the week for the Jews. And then the next morning, of course, they discovered that he was already arose from the grave. Now, here's the important thing about this, and it has to do with Christ being our Passover. It was, it was instituted at that particular time to convey the message that He is our Passover. Then, here's the next thought. Where, where was it instituted? Well, it's described here as a guest chamber in, in Mark chapter number 14, a large upper room furnished and prepared. It's interesting that the Jewish historian, Alfred Edersheim, he suggested this is the same house mentioned in Acts chapter 12 that belonged to the parents of John Mark. I, I don't know if that's true or whatever, and it doesn't make any difference, but the point is that, that they were in Jerusalem. They've traveled there from Bethany, about two miles outside of town, and uh, so it it was at the time when the Jews had gathered together for the celebration of the Passover And long, long years after, remember that Abraham brought his son Isaac as a sacrifice. And after all of those many, many years, remember Abraham saying to Isaac, God will provide himself a lamb. Here it is. Christ our Passover, the Lamb of God, there in Jerusalem at the place where Abraham brought Isaac. Now, who was present? Well, there's a lot of debate as to whether or not Judas Iscariot had already been dismissed from the assembly at that point, and we're not going to get into that debate right now. Some say that he was still there. Some say that, uh, uh, that, that he wasn't, but whatever. Here's the point. The point is that Jesus was assembled there with those men that made up the first church. Remember, there are many other believers. By the way, this is not an open meeting where, hey, we're going to, we're going to start something new. Get in on the ground floor. We'll call it the Lord's Supper. Everybody come on down. It's open for anyone and everyone. No. It wasn't open to the public. And not even open to all of the other believers. And there are many believers at, at this time. Many Christian people. Many followers of the Lord. And they're not invited. I, I tell you, I'd think twice before I criticize what Jesus did whenever He met with them alone. Here's the point. And this is what it tells us. The Lord's Supper is not something that individuals do. It's something that we do as a corporate body of, for worship. 
The members of that congregation. Now, this is all important because later on, you know, we're going to talk about people call, we've got open communion, close communion, and closed communion. And people really get upset about this. And you need to understand that at the very first institution of the Lord's Supper, it was not open to everybody. It was restricted. Now, here's the last thing, and I'll be quick. Why was it instituted? Jesus said it was to be observed in here, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, 24, and 25, but here, here it is in a nutshell, that we are to observe it in remembrance of me. In other words, it is a memorial to remind us of the great sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. That's what it's all about. And by the way, he does not tell us that you ought to do this every week or every month or every quarter. All the Bible tells us is when you do this, you better do it in remembrance of Him. We sing that little chorus, it's all about you, Jesus. Folks, that's what the Lord's Supper is. It's all about Him. And because it is all about Him, we need to study it earnestly and and observe it, not just with the proper understanding, but with the proper attitude of our heart. So that when we walk out of this building on that evening, having observed it, We'll walk out that door, I don't even know how to say it, change, transform, with nothing on our mind. And and most of you know, and some of you will find out, when we observe the Lord's Supper, I encourage people when we're dismissed, leave the building. Leave the building immediately at the conclusion. Go to your car, go home. Don't hang around in the parking lot shaking hands and talking about the ball game and the fishing hole and everything else. I want you to leave here with one thought on your mind and that it's all about Jesus and that He gave His life's blood for you and for me. Well, I hope the next few weeks we can build on that foundation and when it's all said and done, that we'll look back on this little brief series and say uh, that it's helped us have a better understanding of what Jesus did when He died on the cross. Let's stand together and we're going to have prayer and be dismissed. But this is the invitation. and you, We encourage you to... If God's speaking to your heart about anything, to either kneel where you are or to come and to kneel here or whatever, but do business with God. It might be someone's here tonight and and you just know this is where your membership ought to be. Would you come right now with our heads bowed, our eyes closed? If you're here and you've never been saved, let me tell you, You'll never have a better opportunity. You might never have another chance. And you need to settle that. I'm going to encourage each one of you for these next few weeks to really pray like you've never prayed before. I hope that all of a sudden the Lord's Supper will become more important and more meaningful to us than it's ever been in all of our life. 
It ought to be that way every single time. Brother Fred Scott, would you word our prayer as we close the service tonight? God bless you.